This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. It was a busy day at the Wisconsin State Capitol, filled with rallies, floor sessions, and even a fire alarm. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the Capitol building was briefly evacuated after a fire alarm went off moments before a state Senate floor session. Meanwhile, both the state Senate and Assembly had floor sessions today, where a number of bills were sent to the governor's desk. Among the bills approved were a package of bills that push back against COVID vaccine requirements, as well as a bill to allow concealed guns on school property. Finally, two Republican state lawmakers held a rally in the Capitol Rotunda to urge overturning Wisconsin's 2020 presidential election results. We'll have more about that rally coming up later in the show. As if things weren't busy enough at the Capitol today, Governor Tony Evers will deliver his State of the State address this evening. The Associated Press reports that Evers will deliver his speech in person this year after giving it virtually last year. The governor is expected to touch on several topics in his speech tonight, from the state's low unemployment rate to expanding access for high-speed internet. Evers is also expected to discuss Wisconsin's budget surplus after it was announced last month that the state is projected to have an over $3 billion surplus this year. Evers has said he would give each Wisconsin resident a $150 tax rebate to get that money back into their pockets. Republican lawmakers, however, say that they would rather hold on to that money until the next state budget cycle. The governor's State of the State address begins at 7 o'clock this evening to be followed by a Republican rebuttal speech from State Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMayhew. A conservative blogger has entered the race for Madison Board of Education as a write-in candidate, the Capital Times reports. Blogger and former Dane County Supervisor David Blaska announced yesterday that he will be running for seat four in the school board race against incumbent Ali Muldrow. Blaska ran against Muldrow for the seat in 2019. Blaska has been an outspoken critic of the Madison School Board. He wrote on his blog, quote, Madison voters unhappy with the direction of Madison's public schools ought to be able to register a protest vote, end quote. Muldrow is the only incumbent running for re-election among the three seats in the spring election. And speaking of Madison schools, some major construction projects are set to begin in the district's four high schools, reports the Capital Times. Contractors for the construction project presented a a schedule outlined for the project at last night's school board meeting. While most of the heavy construction will take place over the summer, they say there will be some lighter work done this spring. The entire project is scheduled to be completed in 2024. And now for today's COVID-19 numbers. There were 1,217 confirmed COVID cases across the state yesterday as the Omicron variant continues to dissipate in Wisconsin. That brings the seven-day average to 1,828 confirmed cases of the virus per day. The percent of positive test results has also continued to drop, coming in at just 9.5% of tests coming back positive over the past week. Though the number of cases continues to drop, there were nine confirmed deaths from the virus over the weekend, bringing the total number confirmed deaths from the virus in Wisconsin to 11,637. Here in Dane County, there were 173 confirmed COVID cases yesterday, with 87 people currently hospitalized from the virus. And now on to today's top stories.
Community responses to the police shooting of Quadrin Wilson continue as students at Madison's La Follette High School hold a walkout to call for answers and show support. WORT producer Nate Wegehout was on the scene. No About 75 students at La Follette High School walked out of class this morning just after 9 a.m. They'd spend more than two hours speaking about how they've been impacted by the shooting of Quadrin Wilson. Jayla Hogan's is a member of the La Follette High Black Student Union. She says that one of the goals with the walkout is to demand more information. The man was shot five times and no, nobody would tell us anything and the man, they have him in jail. Really, we're out here because we're tired of people giving us the information they want to what they please instead of the full story. And that man does not deserve to be in jail while he's sitting there suffering in pain. So we're out here so that they can hear us. Law enforcement officials have not released many details about the February 3rd arrest of Quadrin Wilson when police shot Wilson five times. The operation involved at least 21 federal, state, and local law enforcement officials, including officers from the State Department of Criminal Investigations, the Federal Drug Enforcement Administration, Madison Police Department, the Wisconsin State Patrol, and one warden from the Department of Natural Resources. Wilson is now incarcerated in the Dane County Jail on a probation violation. Channel 27 reports that Wilson appeared in court this morning on a separate charge. State law requires a third-party agency to investigate police shootings. Typically, that third party would be DCI. In this case, it's the Dane County Sheriff's Office. That's because the Dane County Sheriff's Office announced last Friday that two DCI agents are the ones who shot Wilson. Tiara, a junior at La Follette, organized today's walkout. She says that the school has not talked about Wilson with the students. I came out here to fight for Quajan Wilson, who was recently shot five times in the back. Um, I saw that it was just very wrong, and I thought it needed to be brung up. Nobody brought it up. Barely anybody knew about it. Nobody's talking about it in the schools, and that's why I decided to put this on. I think it's very important that everybody knows. Another issue at today's walkout was the lack of staff and administration present. Students claimed that the school's one black assistant principal, Fanique Hill, was asked to join in the walkout, but opted not to due to the cold weather. La Follette High School could not be reached to verify this statement by airtime. Hogan says that one thing they need to succeed is proper representation. The walkout is not just for students. Madison Deacon John Brown was at the walkout today to show his support. He says that he is proud of the students for standing up for what they think is right. I think I think uh I think that we will go a long way with this one. I think we'll go a long way because these youth right here they, they are so solid on, on history. So I think this this is a great movement right here towards change. You know, I really do. I know a lot of them too. I know a lot of their parents and uh, you know, I know a few people that is participating to make a difference in our community. So I, 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 it's amazing to see that the kids are rally up, willing to do, go further in their education, also in their community. Brown says that he came out after hearing about the walkout from members of the original Milwaukee Black Panthers, who were also in attendance to help organize the event. King Rick, member of the Black Panthers, says that the students have the full support of the Black Panthers. I'm a blessing. I got your back. The original Black Panthers got your back. All the time. Man, listen, it's your world. After a short march across school grounds, the rally ended just before noon today. Reporting for WORT News, 
I'm Nate Wuggy Hout with additional reporting from Greg Jaboski. Today is the spring primary election, and while there are no races in the city of Madison, there are in other communities across Wisconsin. For today's primary, clerks' offices are allowed to use absentee ballot drop boxes. But during the spring election in April, municipalities will not be able to use drop boxes, following a ruling by the state Supreme Court. WRT reporter Heron Splinter has the story. In 2020, Madison was one of five major cities to install absentee ballot drop boxes during the pandemic. Costing about $53,000 apiece, the drop boxes were installed at fire stations across the city to make voting more accessible for everyone. Denise Jess is the executive director of the Wisconsin Council for the Blind and Visually Impaired. Voting is very difficult. So when we choose to vote in person at our polls, where we often experience transportation barriers in getting to those polls. We experience uh, accessibility issues once we're in the polling place with equipment failures or not having the proper assistance to cast a ballot or not having access to curbside voting. So things like drop boxes and the ability to hand my ballot to someone that I trust to deliver to the clerk's office on my behalf or my polling place on my behalf are two really important things that help decrease some of those barriers and allow qualified voters to cast their ballots if they're people with disabilities. During the November 2020 election, Wisconsin had one of the highest turnout rates in the nation at about 75.5%, according to a Pew Research report. But it is unclear exactly how much ballot drop boxes contributed to those numbers. Here's Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway. I don't have a specific number for November 2020, but it is hundreds, if not thousands, of ballots that came through our drop boxes citywide. Last Friday, the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled that ballot drop boxes would not be allowed for the upcoming April election. Their decision comes while a full ruling on the legality of drop boxes is pending. That ruling impacts voters of color across the state. The mayor's office says that 47% of all voters of color in Wisconsin are in the five cities that added ballot boxes in 2020. Here's Reverend Dr. Marcus Allen Sr. of Mount Zion Baptist Church. Removing these drop boxes will add to the continued attempt of suppressing the voice of the citizens in this state. I would ask the courts to allow these drop boxes to remain because they have attributed to the increase of more voters voting in our state. The lawsuit that brought this rule change was filed by the Wisconsin Institute of Law and Liberty, or WILL, a conservative legal firm. At a press conference this afternoon, Mayor Rhodes-Conway was direct in calling out the court's decision, describing it as a coordinated attack on democracy and a clear attempt to keep people from voting. But what will the city do if the state's highest court decides that these boxes are unlawful? Again, Mayor Rhodes-Conway. Well, we are certainly not going to do anything before we hear the final ruling from the state Supreme Court. Uh, but the way I feel about it is you can pry these drop boxes out of my cold, dead hands. <laughs> For WORT News, I'm Heron Splinter.
It's now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Earlier today, two Republican members of the state assembly held a rally in the Capitol Rotunda to call on fellow lawmakers to overturn Wisconsin's vote in the 2020 presidential election. This rally was hosted by State Representative Tim Ramthun, a Republican who denies, despite clear evidence from multiple recounts, investigations, audits, and court decisions, that President Joe Biden won Wisconsin in 2020. To learn more about this rally, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with CBS 58 Milwaukee reporter Emily Fannin, who was at the Capitol this afternoon. I'm on the line with Emily Fannin with CBS 58 in Milwaukee. Emily, thank you so much for talking with me here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. So just to start things off, what was this rally about today? What were they asking for? So it was uh, kind of the two lawmakers that spearheaded the event was Representative Janelle Branchen of Menominee Falls and Republican Representative Tim Ransom, who are basically uh, urging uh, top Republicans here in Wisconsin to support their resolution, basically demanding that their resolution come to the floor that seeks to revoke 10 Wisconsin uh, Wisconsin's 10 electoral votes uh, for Joe Biden. So a lot of supporters that were here today uh, believe the election was stolen, which we know we've had numerous audits and reviews and courts that have, of course, uh, said that the election was not stolen and Joe Biden was determined the winner. So tell me a little bit about Tim Rantham. I know that he announced over the weekend that he was running for governor. Why was he? Tell me about him. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we've kind of known for a little while that uh, Representative Rantham was going to enter the Republican field for governor, and he did have a big rally over the weekend that brought in numerous people. I would say about 300 to 400 people were there, and he's basically making the 2022 election about 2020. Um, like I said, the supporters here today and that were there over the weekend really just firmly believe this election was stolen. It was not fair. Um, and so they're trying to do everything they can through this resolution, which was also the, the, the big event today, too, was to try to get that on the floor to basically rescind uh, Wisconsin's 10 electoral votes. But, you know, nonpartisan attorneys and GOP leaders say that is not going to happen uh, and that it is actually legally impossible to do that at this point. Um, I also spoke to Representative Jim Steinecke, who oversees the Rules Committee. Basically, what the supporters are doing here today is they're now walking to Republicans' offices, trying to demand them to bring this resolution to the floor. But Representative Steinecke says it is dead on arrival. Uh, he uh, spears the Rules Committee, which determines what bills and resolutions go onto the assembly floor. And he basically said there's no way, Jose, that that is coming into the assembly or it will ever see sight on the assembly floor. So how many people were at this rally in the Capitol earlier today? I know it's a it's a busy day even without that rally, but how many people were there and what was the overall mood of the rally? What was it like down there? Yeah, I, we, we were told there would be about 500 people. I would say maybe about 250, um, not counting the numerous uh, reporters that were also seen in the crowd. It's kind of the same energy, uh, I would say, similar to a Trump event. Um, a lot of a lot of people just uh, upset about the 2020 election and calling for another audit. Um, that's what we heard a lot of chance to for this cyber forensic audit, which is Representative Rantham's kind of M.O. in that he will call for a full forensic audit if he's elected. He promises to to even audit his own election to 
you know, increased transparency. That's what he's trying to make this all about. So um, also in, in the crowd today, too, was a lot of toss boss signs. Now that reference, uh, Assembly Speaker Robin Boss, who a lot of people are targeting lately because they don't believe he's doing enough to look in to the 2020 election, even though he has hired former justice, uh, uh, former, excuse me, Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman, uh, to review the 2020 election that was launched in October, but it's been months and we haven't really seen any results and there's no end in sight on when that Gableman investigation will wrap up. So a lot of people are more attracted to Representative Ransom and his efforts um, in, in his kind of campaign promise to, to review and basically do more than what Speaker Voss is doing right now. So there's been no real evidence of any fraud, electoral fraud here in Wisconsin, and it has been proven over and over again that Joe Biden did, in fact, win in the state of Wisconsin here. Can Do you know why these people are still calling for the overturning of the electoral results here in Wisconsin? Well, I'll clarify first your statement. There's been no evidence of widespread voter fraud. There's been very, very select few instances where people set their address to P.O. boxes, and that was considered not a real address, so their ballot didn't count. But, you know, when you're asking about why is this, you know, still the drumbeats, we are here, you know, almost two years after the 2020 election. I, I think it's, you know, Republicans just want to make this their big election push. We see other Republican candidates in the race for governor, uh, former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish and Marine veteran Kevin Nicholson also making election integrity their entire, um, I guess, I, their top one priority, I should say, if they were to be elected. And it's, it's kind of just been the messaging all along, and it seems to be really rallying people up because there are there's a lot of Republicans specifically that don't believe um, the election was fair, that there were things that went wrong. Um, a lot of those uh, stem from the pandemic. You know, clerks were put in a tough position trying to put on uh, numerous elections uh, during uh, this unfortunate time where things are just uncertain and we're still trying to get people to vote. So we've also seen here at the state capitol um, a numerous bills come out from Republicans that kind of address some of those concerns. But Governor Tony Evers has vowed that if those bills reach his desk, he will veto them. So Republicans are trying to make that also a key point that, you know, if I'm elected as your Republican governor, I'll make sure we bring some changes to our election laws. So you mentioned earlier that this rally was sort of spearheaded by two halves and the other half being Janelle Brantian of Menominee Falls, uh, the representative from over there. What can you tell me about her uh, so she's actually held uh, previous events outside the state capitol, too, uh, demanding for, you know, another audit. Uh, she's also had repeatedly false claims about the election, that it was stolen. Um, she also kind of aligns herself with some conspiracy theorists that we also um, spoke here at the state capitol today. So she is the chair, uh, I should say, co-chair of the Assembly Elections Committee. So she's been hosting in what are quote-unquote called informal hearings. They're not anything about bills, but the people that she's had testify here at the state capitol are well-known conspiracy theorists. Um, so she's still just trying to, I guess, give, give them a platform and also to show that she's trying to do, you know, her duty in looking into these concerns. Um, but we've, we've seen some other Republicans kind of resist her efforts as well because they just, they really want to move on. Um, that's where some Republicans here in this building are put in a tough spot, that 
They may not believe the election was stolen. They think there were some things that went wrong, um, but they just don't want to go that far as some others that we're seeing, like Representative Branch in here at the Capitol. So, Emily, we are sort of running up against the clock here. So do you have just any final thoughts on what's been happening at the Capitol here today? Uh, no final thoughts. Just uh, <laughs> take it day by day, I can say, is what I'm doing here. There's lots to follow, so a lot of uh, great local journalists that are covering these uh, these events and everything that happens day to day here at the state capitol, so make sure you tune in. I've been speaking with Emily Fannin with CBS 58 out of Milwaukee about the rally to decertify the 2020 election over at the Capitol. Emily, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to talk with me. Well, thanks for having me. Take care. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call checks in on what UW's pandemic response means for accessibility. Wildlife Weekly explains what it takes to care for 6,000 small birds. And Radio Astronomy beholds the galaxy-spanning structure that comprises the cosmic web. But now we'll take a quick break and check in on some world headlines back in a flash. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, Cardinal Call producer Hope Carnop spoke with feature contributor Maggie Kahn about how UW-Madison has been addressing accessibility issues during the pandemic. We have the resources. We did it. You know, we... We went fully online and we got it done successfully and we should be able to find a way to keep those practices in place. Welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by features writer Maggie Kahn to discuss how COVID-19 has impacted accessibility in education. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Maggie. Thank you for having me. Just thinking back over the past two years or so, how have classes been offered at different points in time and what accessibility concerns have grown out of each of those? Yeah, so when COVID hit, obviously we went strictly online for a long time, which for many people with disabilities is very nice to have. It makes learning a lot more accessible when either they're suffering from chronic fatigue, pain, Um, sickness, whether they just can't get out of bed to go to class that day, there's always that online option for them. Um, But also hybrid learning has helped them as well because they have the option of going in person when they feel like they need a little bit more in-person instruction to understand something a little bit better. But again, if they're having an off day, if their body just can't do it that day, then they have the option to like learn from home, which a lot of the people I interviewed said should be implemented 
regardless of the pandemic. And I completely and wholeheartedly agree with that. Going into virtual classes specifically, what were some of the challenges that students you talked to said um, were associated with that type of learning? I interviewed Morgan Steber, who is a junior here, and she suffers from like chronic f- fatigue and pain. And while her disability isn't doesn't like necessarily physically present itself, it, it was kind of hard for her to um, deal with like that much screen time for her because it would cause headaches and things like that. Plus, she noted that a lot of teachers would assign like more homework than was normal um, because she had experienced school in a normal setting. Um, So basically, she just said that there was a bigger expectation to study more and to do homework more because we had so much free time now that we were all online. And so that also put a lot of pressure on people, regardless of disability. And um, so that would be probably one of the biggest struggles with online learning. On the other hand, did you talk to any students that find virtual classes to be more accessible for them? Yeah, so um, I talked to Elise Felstead, and she has cerebral palsy. And basically, she felt like on days when, say, she forgot to charge her wheelchair or days where it just wasn't convenient or it was snowing or raining or something and the commute to class wasn't ideal for her she had the uh, like the opportunity to still feel like she was participating and getting the necessary information to do well so um, she definitely benefited from online learning what were some of the accommodations that professors offered throughout the pandemic that still might be continuing now and how has that impacted students yeah so Personally, I know I have a few professors that record the lecture and post it after class just because one, there's so many kids and COVID is, you know, running rampant again. So I think it's very smart to do that. And I think that even regardless of a virus, that should be an option that's available because we should be able to go over that lecture again and again if we want to, to learn. And, you know, some people don't learn well in that sort of setting. I would say that there is a lot more um, understanding and I guess wiggle room to sort of, you know, communicate with your professor and say, I was, you know, exposed to someone with COVID or I'm really not feeling well. I'm going to wait until I get my test back. And most teachers, at least in my experience and from the experiences that I have researched, um, have been, have gotten some pretty like positive responses back. Could you also talk about open note policies and how students have kind of viewed those throughout this time? Yeah, so I've always been a big supporter of open notes, again, regardless of a virus, because most students can't or don't learn well by just straight memorization. So being able to utilize those resources and have, I think that you actually can prove that you know a subject better if you can have that you know, your notes next to you. I don't think that that should be considered cheating. And I don't think that that should be looked down upon. I think that it's a really great resource because, you know, at least for me, (laughs) when I try to memorize something straight up and don't, you know, for a test, I usually don't remember that. (laughs) And it just goes away the second I leave the testing room. So um, I definitely think that that should be an option for kids. And I know that for a lot of people with mental health um, issues, definitely struggled with 
the transition from going from complete open notes because we were online and they couldn't, you know, prevent us from using our notes to now having to go back to just those strict testing practices, which, you know, can be really stressful and can be really scary for some students. So um, I definitely think that people should definitely look more into using open notes all the time. You also talked to the McBurney Disability Resource Center on campus for this story. What did they have to say about what they've observed throughout periods of online learning? Yeah, so basically I talked to Leslie Stilson and she is an access consultant and basically her major concerns were that, yes, we do have access consultants, which is a great resource for people with disabilities, but at the same time, many, like for every access consultant, there are several students assigned to them. There aren't enough access consultants, which I also know that um, some students that I talked to felt the same way. So, but other than that, she said that basically online learning helped a lot of people who feel the stress of like, having to go in person or whether that be for health issues, whether that be for social anxiety or just test anxiety, whatever the case may be, she definitely said that that was a great resource and it was amazing that Wisconsin got it in, like they implemented it into the curriculum so quickly when it hit in March of 2020. So that was great, but we also need to sort of continue that now that things are relaxing a little bit more, we still need to keep that going. Just in general, listening to the students that you got a chance to talk to, are they hopeful that more conversations about accessibility will continue after this pandemic? Yes, definitely. Especially in the class that I took on disability and sexuality, we had a lot of discussions about that and how since the pandemic sort of forced us to use our resources and help people with disabilities more than normal, we're sort of hoping that it becomes a part of everyday life because we have the resources, we did it. You know, we we went fully online and we got it done successfully and we should be able to find a way to keep those practices in place while also continuing hybrid learning for those that wish to go and things like that. So um, I think the big, important message to take away from it is just that we need to talk about it more. It needs to be something that is addressed in every single class, not just gender women's studies, not just disability studies. It has to be everywhere in order to really make a difference. Is there anything else you think listeners should know about your story? Basically, one of the things that really stood out to me was that access affects everybody. It's not just people with disabilities. I mean, I am an able-bodied person and I fully benefited from online learning. We also had people, we had like note takers for classes so that you could have like really in-depth notes while you, so that you wouldn't have to worry about that while you were in class. You could just listen and appreciate what your teacher was saying and things like that. I don't necessarily need them, but they helped a lot in my learning progress. And, you know, I think that people don't really have this idea that accessibility is for everyone and we need to change that mindset in order to really get anywhere because you know accessibility is a great thing regardless of disability or physical state it's just 
it's really helpful in learning. Great. Thank you so much, Maggie, for coming and sharing your reporting with us. Yeah, thank you. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. On this week's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg shares the stories of the myriad passerines here in Wisconsin as these songbirds make their homes around the state. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about common bird orders and families underneath them. And specifically today, I want to talk about the order Passeriformes, which includes the passerine songbirds, and that is, believe it or not, more than half of all of the bird species in the world. I was shocked when I was looking up some additional information for a fun presentation I'll be giving at UW-Madison this week, and I was researching how many of those families exist and how many species, and it's it's a lot. It's pretty tremendous. So we have 141 different families of passerines, which includes 6,470 individual species, and that is out of the 10,824 species that are specifically identified and categorized. Well, how do you know that it would be a passerine, and what kind of birds are in the passeriform order? Well, for the passerine family, we have some key attributes that we use to be able to know that they are in that particular family. So one attribute is that they have three toes that are pointing forward and one back. So we've got like a little triangle kind of, so three in the front, one in the back, and that helps to facilitate their perching. And that's called anisodactyl, meaning that they have the ability to perch and curl onto a branch. And they actually have an additional tendon that sits behind the tibiotarsus, which is kind of the lower part of the leg. It meets up with the foot and then the digits. And that tendon allows them to curl those toes onto that branch very, very effectively. And they've even done some research and recent studies uh, watching birds in slow motion and showing the pressure and the amount of velocity and speed that those birds can land on a surface from an engineering perspective, just to show what types of surfaces birds can land on. And it's almost everything. They can land on it because of this ability to perch very effectively. All right, so what else is different? Other things might be that they have generally about 12 retrices, so six on the right and six on the left. They also have altricial young, so altricial mean that they're born pretty much naked and helpless and they need parental input to be able to survive. And that's different from precocial birds, which are a lot of your waterfowl and ducks and things which can just hatch and run around and find food and wow, they're successful. So altricial young obviously have a lot of different types of requirements and strategies for their growth and development, but passerines all do it just in a different way. It really depends on each species. So what about the passerine songbirds? You know, what are we doing in rehabilitation that might be different from other families or other orders? Well, we might be handling them slightly different. We do have some handling techniques that we use and follow that are along, you know, our North American banding guidelines. We do obviously have very different housing requirements for passerine songbirds compared to other species. 
Uh, we also have so many different types of diets in comparison. Insects are definitely the most common food source, I would say, for most birds. But we also have granivores, birds that are eating just seeds. So when I think of the house finch family, the fringillidae, you know, we are going to provide them with lots of seeds in care. But keeping in mind that our, a lot of our commercial seeds are not necessarily vitamin or nutrient enriched, where they would be out in the wild eating so many different types of wild seeds from wild plants. So there are risks in rehabilitation like hypovitaminosis A, which is a lack of vitamin A in the diet. And that's very commonly seen in just seed eaters. But yes, lots of millet sprigs and seed feeders hanging around different cages. Um, they're not going to eat as many mealworms unless, you know, it might be more often provided during the nestling stage. But honestly, they're pretty much just strictly seed feeding. We have omnivores, which are kind of our generic diet specialists. So we've got our blue jays and chickadees. They'll eat lots of different things, you know, fruits and vegetations and seeds and suet. Uh, so we see a lot of those everywhere around here in Wisconsin. And it's nice because we can offer a variety of items in the diet. And then we have animals that are more frugivorous. So the frugivores, I think of Baltimore Orioles who are going to eat just fruit or mostly fruit. Shouldn't say just fruit because there's definitely a lot of insects that they're eating, especially at the young ages. But we're putting whole fruit in all of the cages, lots of berries, lots of calcium for them to eat. And again, cage setup is going to be very different because you're going to see lots of whole food in the cages, on the branches and, you know, poked around for enrichment, which I think is pretty exciting for them. So we have a lot of different types of, you know, strategies by the different passerine families. You know, when I'm thinking of like our northern cardinals, for example, they have a super wide beak. That's going to be in an, an entirely different family to itself. They are definitely seed eaters, but they're going to have a different strategy with their beak to be able to hopefully eat the seeds, pushing the seed to the side and, you know, getting the casing open to eat it. Whereas that might be different than the order columbiforms, which has morning doves and pigeons who just go ahead and swallow swallow those seeds and then their crop, which is the muscle that you know, pouch that uh, leads to the proventriculus or the stomach, they're going to have those seeds in there and it might require some mechanical digestion aid, like eating grit to be able to get the seed husks off. So lots of variety that, you know, we should really appreciate. You know, we've got orders that are, for example, we've got the sparrows, there's old and new world sparrows. We have the icterids. We have, uh, gosh, there's just, a, just an incredible amount. If you ever look it up, highly suggest maybe making an account and it is a paid account, but the birds of North America, America is just an awesome resource. And it's through the Cornell Lab, but you can have an account and be able to look up everything, a compile of research about all the different types of species, all the orders and families and their characteristics and behaviors and what they're most known for, all down to the nitty gritty level of, you know, when do these birds develop this set of feathers? And when do they become uh, sexually reprodu reproductive? What do they eat? Where do they go? Where do they migrate? And like, what's their conservation status? And even what's their evolutionary history? It's an amazing, amazing resource that I, I think people that really like birds and want to know more about birds should definitely check out. So if you're ever, you know, going to go on the Cornell website, you know, there's obviously the birdsoftheworld.org. So that one is, uh, I would say, more use for the public, right? And that would be our eBird. But, you know, people are using that more often for citizen science projects. But otherwise, the Birds of North America is through them, but separate. So you can definitely check that out and register online if you want to know really in-depth details about different types of species like the passerines. So yeah, we, we have a uh 
an incredible number of passerines, right? So I mentioned how many, uh, a lot of them here in Wisconsin, and we uh, have to give them very drastically different types of diets, different types of cages, different types of enrichment for them to be successful in rehabilitation. And so the, the point of this segment here is really just to talk about the diversity of the different birds. Even though they have a few traits in common, we do have to memorize and know every single type of species so that we're effectively ready to mobilize to help an animal in need. So if that cardinal comes in, we know exactly what it needs for a diet and what kind of cage setup and how it likes to hide or be able to use its space, even to the point of what kind of elevation does it need? Does it like to forage on the ground like our thrushes? Does it need to be high up in the air like our aerial insectivores? Maybe a raised platform for eating different types of insects, the different types of variety of insects that might be needed. So that's a little bit about our uh, passerines, at least. Uh, you can definitely look up all the different types of families and again, those individual species if you're interested, lots of color, lots of differences in beaks and, you know, patterns and stuff. They're very wonderful. But just know that your local wildlife rehabilitator should be really experienced in knowing, you know, what those species are and how to care for them. And that's how we do our jobs effectively. So if you ever find a bird, maybe it's sick, it's injured, or maybe you just don't know what species it is in your backyard, you want to know some more, you can send us a picture, you know, we're helpful in those ways. So give us a call if you ever have a question at 608 287-3235. And thanks for listening. This has been Wildlife Weekly on WORT. It's now 6.52 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Space can be sort of a sticky subject. On this archival episode of Radio Astronomy, hosts Melissa Morris and Julie Davis traverse the galaxies that are connected via the cosmic web. Thanks for tuning in today, folks. My name is Melissa Morris. And my name is Julie Davis. Welcome to Radio Astronomy. Hey, Melissa, how do you feel about spiders? Not great, especially since they're everywhere this time of year. Why do you ask? Well, I think spiders are really cool, especially their webs. They remind me of our universe. Interesting. Why is that, Julie? They remind me of the cosmic web. But this web is much bigger than those pesky spider webs you need to brush off of your car. In fact, the cosmic web is the structure of the universe and began to form right after the universe was born, when it was filled mostly with gas that hadn't yet become galaxies, stars, or planets. There is also a lot of dark matter. While astronomers don't know exactly what it is, we do know that it exists because we can see how light and matter gravitationally interact with it. That's right. Dark matter existed even when the universe was incredibly young, although it was spread out mostly uniformly. However, there were small regions where normal matter and dark matter were slightly piled up. These regions started feeling the effects of their own gravity and started to collapse and form structure in the early universe. Ah uh, yes, and that structure is what we call the cosmic web. 
Exactly. The cosmic web is where most of the matter in the universe is located, and it just so happens to look very similar to a spider web because it is made up of long, thin filaments that extend throughout the universe. Since the gas concentrated in the cosmic web is fairly dense, it was the perfect site in the early universe to form galaxies like our own Milky Way. Therefore, most galaxies and a large amount of intergalactic gas lie within the filaments of the cosmic web. In fact, astronomers are able to roughly map the cosmic web by mapping locations of galaxies. There are also points in the cosmic web where filaments run into each other. These points are called nodes. Nodes are exciting because they contain a particularly enormous amount of dark matter, gas, and galaxies. In fact, these nodes are where astronomers observe what we call galaxy clusters, which are huge collections of hundreds, and in some cases thousands, of galaxies orbiting near one another. Galaxy clusters are turbulent environments constantly growing as more and more objects merge with them. This constant movement can generate magnetic fields, which in turn can accelerate particles within these galaxy clusters. Particles accelerated by magnetic fields emit a special kind of light that can be observed by astronomers at radio wavelengths. While it's not unusual to observe this kind of radio emission within galaxy clusters themselves, it hasn't necessarily been observed along filaments of the cosmic web that connect clusters. At least until very recently. A few days ago, a team of Italian astronomers, led by Dr. Federica Giovanni, published a study of some strange radio emission that bridged two galaxy clusters along a filament in the cosmic web. This strange radio emission was initially seen by the Planck satellite that is currently orbiting the Earth. Dr. Giovanni's team was intrigued by this emission, so they observed it using the Low Frequency Array, or LOFAR, which is a giant array of radio telescopes scattered across Europe. With this, they were able to measure the magnetic field responsible for this emission. They discovered that this radio emission was being generated by a magnetic field roughly one million times weaker than that of our own Earth. This magnetic field connects the clusters, which are separated by roughly 10 million light years. This is the first observational evidence of magnetic fields in filaments of the cosmic web. It's unclear as to whether or not this is a unique case, or if these are actually very common. That's not all, though. It turns out the radio emission they observed covers a structure that is much, much larger than can be explained by our current models of the universe. Therefore, the particles and intergalactic gas that are emitting this radio light are likely being accelerated by some other process. But what could that be? Astronomers will need to continue studying this giant cosmic spiderweb to find out more. With that, we will end this week's radio astronomy. Thanks for tuning in, folks. For more exciting astronomy news and updates, be sure to check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash radioastronomy. Have a stellar week. And that does it for our show tonight. Thank you for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter was Heron Splinter. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the radio astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Buckyhout produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with Enuestro Patio. Good night.